Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pung, and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Today I'm joined by Dr. Andy Tag, who is an emergency medicine physician working across both adult and pediatric emergency, as well as a co-founder of Don't Forget the Bubbles. Don't Forget the Bubbles was started as a blog in 2013 and has grown to become a leading FOMED resource for pediatric medicine, as well as providing education through courses and conferences. Prior to his life in Australia, Andy trained at the NHS and then spent four and a half years working as a doctor on cruise ships. He also tells us the story of the time he ate a piece of Lego for science and got mentioned by both Jimmy Fallon and James Corden on their talk shows. Hi, Dr. Andy Tag. Welcome to the CCIM podcast. So excited to have you here today. Thanks, Elise. Lovely to see you. To start us off, I want to give our audience a bit of a sense of who you are and what you do. So can you explain the different roles that you're currently doing for us? Yep. So I'm an emergency physician in the western suburbs of Melbourne, and I split my time 75-25% with looking after adults in one hospital and looking after kids in another. I want to get a bit of a sense of the medical side of things, but I also want to talk to you a bit later on about the don't forget the bubbles side of things and a few of the other creative things that you've done. When did you actually decide that you wanted to get into medicine? Do you remember that decision and what led you to medicine in the first place? Yeah, so I'm the first person in my family to stay on at school over the age of 16. And really, I loved science. I loved biology. We did our sort of careers assessment day at school. And the two options that the careers council gave me were either going into law or medicine. And I hated the idea of law and sitting in front of dry and dusty books and just arguing with people all day long. And I really loved the science and biology. So I decided that medicine was for me. And by 15, I knew I wanted to be a doctor, but I actually thought I wanted to be a pathologist. I'd spent a lot of my sort of years reading murder books and horror books, and I thought it'd be amazing solving crimes. So it's like Bones and Kay Scarpetta from the sort of Patricia Cornwell books. And so I saw my first post-mortem when I was 15 years old. So a friend of the family was in the police and arranged me to go and see someone who'd been pulled out of the river having their autopsy. I thought, this is amazing. I really want to do this. And only when I got to medical school did I realize that pathologists don't really do cool things like that. They spend a lot of time looking at boring pink and purple slides. And so I needed a change in sort of direction. And so I'd enjoyed studying and I didn't really know what I wanted to do in medical school. I'd done a psychology BSc in the middle of things. And by the time I'd left medicine, I'd really enjoyed every single rotation I did. And by the time I left I thought I was going to do something like HIV medicine. So I did my elective in Chicago back in the 90s doing HIV medicine. And when I got back to the UK where I trained, I started doing pal care and gen med sort of training. And I found it boring, to be honest. I found it wasn't as inspiring as I wanted it to be. HIV medicine at the time turned from an inpatient speciality to an outpatient speciality. I hated interminable ward rounds and sitting in clinics seeing same type of patients again and again. And I'd had some amazing times doing my ED placements. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is really interesting. I really want to do this. And so I started looking at doing emergency medicine as a career. And I started my training doing that in the UK. And that involved all the little bits as well, spending time doing ICU, spending time doing anesthetics. And that's what I decided I wanted to do with my life for a while anyway. How long did you actually work in emergency in the UK? I did it for about three or four years in total, and it was around the point where modernizing medical careers came into the United Kingdom. 
And then one of the challenges is we had the introduction of the four hour rule. And so what that meant is that patients had basically had within four hours from the time they rocked up at the front door to be seen and either admitted or discharged. And then as the registrar, my job seemed to be to see the person who was waiting at three hours and 45 minutes within growing toenail and needed to be seen and sorted out straight away. And I found that incredibly frustrating. It wasn't what I liked to do. I didn't like the siloed aspects of emergency medicine in the UK as was. I love the critical care aspect and resuscitation. And I'd just gone from a ICU rotation where I was able to intubate people and put central lines in back to the emergency environment when if any patients needed those things, I had to call an inpatient team to do them. I wasn't allowed to do them, even though I had the skill set. And so I thought I'd retrain and become an anesthetist. I spent a year doing anesthetics at Frimley with an amazing team, really enjoyed myself and thought, if I'm going to do this, I need to do even more exams because I'd already done a set of emergency medicine exams. And so I thought I would take a little career break. And I saw a job advertised in BMJ Careers for life as a cruise ship doctor. And I jumped to the chance. I decided I'd go and work at sea for a little while, ostensibly to study for exams. That was my plan. My plan was to go away for a year, study for the primary FRCA exam, and then come back. And as all good things happened, that didn't quite work out as planned. (laughs) Yeah, I understand you spent a fair few years on cruise ships. How did that actually work? What was the job like? And were you out at sea all the time or were you coming and going in blocks? So I ended up working for Princess for four and a half years. And it started out my very first job. My very first rotation was essentially you acting as an apprentice to a doctor had already been at sea. And we were sailing around the med looking after essentially Club 1830 people on a ship. And that was wonderful. And, And then we repositioned after two months to the Caribbean and then sailed around the Caribbean for a couple of months. And basically how it works is that you work for three to four months at a time and then have two months off. You're paid whilst you're working and you're working for that entire time period. You don't have an evening off per se. And then in for the sort of six weeks to eight weeks in between deployments, then you're not paid. You're basically back at home. But each day would start with a clinic. We would have a crew clinic and a passenger clinic and then it'd be dovetailed at the other end of the day with a passenger and crew clinic. And so the senior doctor would often look after the passengers on board. The junior doctor would look after the crew. And some of these bigger ships, you've got 1,400, 1,500 crew who may be on the ship for 10 months at a time. So you're very much doing a lot of their primary care, plus dealing with their accidents and injuries. And then when you're looking after, if you're the senior doctor looking after the patients, the passengers, you've got a number of duties. You've got that medical job. So you're looking after people with all the same medical things you would see in real life. Imagine the average age of passenger on board is 70 to 80 years old. And you've got a new village of 2,000 people churning over every single week or every fortnight. You get all their normal things. You get strokes, you get heart attacks, you get problems with their diabetes. You get people who forget their medications and you've got got to deal with that. You get people who fall over and break their wrists or break their hips. And so you've got to look after them. And so you've got to, I would say 80% of what I did was primary care. And another 20% was emergency critical care stuff. So if someone has a cardiac arrest on board the ship, we could get our cardiac arrest team, which would be the two doctors often and the nursing crew, to that patient within a minute, start CPR, defibrillate, intubate as necessary, put their lines in, and then keep them going in our mini hospital on board the ship in the medical center until we're at an appropriate place to disembark them. How did you feel in terms of, I feel like that sounds like a rather resource poor environment did it feel resource poor or did you feel well supported and well trained 
It's interesting. We did a lot of training before we started, and then a lot of what you do, you learn on the job. Medicine is medicine wherever you are in the world, and you are constrained with the equipment you've got. The harder thing was always the logistics. We had access to ventilators. We did our own blood tests. We did our own x-rays. And I could get D-dimers and troponins in 20 minutes, and I can get faster than I can still get in my public hospital in Melbourne. And, you know, this was 15 plus years ago. And so from that point of view, it's great. If a patient needed to be landed, I could, you know, get on the satellite phone and get them either helicoptered off the ship, taken off by boat, or land them in the next port. The challenge really comes with working in a small team on board the ship and not having time off for four months at a time. I think that's the bigger issue. You know, a lot of what we do is the medicine would take up three or four hours of the day. And then a lot of what you're doing then is either managerial sort of stuff, filling in paperwork, doing hygiene rounds for the ship, because you're also one of your jobs is to look after the risk of infectious diseases on board, making sure the kitchens are clean and tidy, making sure that patients are sticking to quarantine, as was the case, dealing with compliance for local port authorities, and obviously continuing ongoing medical education on board for your mini crew of five or six. This was in the time we had still had great internet access for all the other ships, so we'd be chatting and asking questions. But I think the hardest thing is you didn't have other people to better bounce ideas off, like in the same way you do in a hospital environment. If I'm at work in my hospital in Melbourne and someone's sick and I'm not sure what's going on, I can ask and I can get a response pretty quickly. When you're at sea, you're very much waiting for the internet or the weather to clear up for things to get sorted out. And that can be a bit of a challenge. I imagine. Was there specific skills that you needed to qualify for the job? Had you needed to do your ED exams or what sort of is the end? No, you need, so you need, ideally they wanted you to have had at least a couple of years of emergency medicine practice, plus ideally six months in a critical care specialty. So anesthetics or ICU and I've done a couple of years of both. And really that's just to make sure that you are comfortable dealing with the emergencies. When you start, you are the second doctor on board. You're not the most experienced doctor. It's important that if someone goes down and you need to tube them, then that both of you can do that. And a lot of what you need to be able to do is it's teamwork and work and being hands-on. So it's everyone gets to learn how to practice how to use the defibrillator and the ventilators and the x-ray machines and all the blood tests. You learn all of those things on the job and there's a great training package for that. But there's some things that only come with experience and time and having seen that breadth of conditions. Things that see you would never see in a textbook, you would never learn about. We used to run a shore party in Princess Keys, which was a tropical paradise island, essentially, that Princess Cruises owned in the Caribbean. And once a week, we'd have to go ashore, set up a little medical center. And our job then really was to make sure people were okay. But we'd see lots of heat strokes and heat injuries. I'd have people come in with crabs that crawling into their ears where they'd fallen asleep. You don't learn how to deal with that in a textbook. Oh, it sounds like a very interesting experience all around. How did you actually transition out of that? What was the push to leave that environment and return to medical training again? I really loved my time at sea. And like I said, I did it for four and a half years. But I think two things culminated in my sort of desire to leave. One was that I, I was going to settle down, get married. My then fiance, who then became my wife, would travel with me towards the end of my sort of time at sea. So she would come on for a month at a time. So she was locoming in a pharmacy environment. She could take time off. She would come on board for a a cheap cruise for a a month and spend time with me. But if we wanted to settle down and have a family, that wasn't going to be an option. It's it's very hard to have children when you're separated by 10,000 miles of water. And the other problem I had was I was worried I was going to get de-skilled. 
I think there's a lot of things you do because you have to do them. I didn't have access to ultrasound or CT scans or MRIs or easy access to specialists. And I knew what I knew, but I had no way of learning around the edges. And I was concerned that the longer I stayed, the harder it would be for me to get a job elsewhere. And so I started looking for jobs. Over, I didn't really want to go back to the NHS. I was hearing lots of challenges and issues with friends who were still working in the system. And then the options were either go to Canada, go to the US or go to Australia. And at the time, Victoria was advertising quite heavily for junior doctors to come over to really to fill in gaps. And they had a central system. I just sent in my CV and saying, hey, I'd love to come and work in your country. And I had three or four or requests for interviews within the first week of signing up and with places either in Albury, Wodonga or over in the city. And they made it easy for me. They made, basically said, okay, you come and apply for us. We'll sort out your visas and, and all your paperwork. And so I came over to Australia to do an emergency medicine registrar job. And when I came over, I basically did my year of provisional training with APRA and then joined the college and started my formal emergency medicine training. I had to do some of it again because I spent such a long time at sea. I didn't get a recognition of prior learning because everything that was five years out of date didn't count from the college point of view. Really, you know, I started off, I was older than a number of my consultants with a lot more life experience. You know, I've sailed around the world three or four times. I've been to places that most people never go to. But all those experiences, plus the experience of spending time in a huge customer service environment, which a cruise ship is, I think has made me a better doctor. How did you end up doing both peds and adults? As part of our training with ASIM, we have to do a period, we have to fill in a logbook and do three to six months of pediatrics. And I really loved it. It was, I loved the chance of generally getting to play with healthier patients and their families. And it was something I think I just had a flair for. And so it's something I continued during my training. And then once I qualified, once I passed my exams, I continued to do that job over in Sunshine where I work now. And it was, I think it's just something that if you go to work every day and you enjoy what you do, it makes it easy to continue doing it. Did you have to do an extra few years or year to do the PEDS training after? So I am one of the few people who hasn't done pediatric, formal pediatric training. So now if you're doing a PEM training, you have to have done, depending on whether you've come through the pediatric Royal College of Physicians or ASIM, you have to do further training and further exams. So I can't call myself, I would call myself an emergency physician with a special interest in pediatrics is my formal qualification slash title. If I wanted to go to get further training now, I would then have to spend six months doing PICU, six months doing ward peds plus further exams. And as a consultant who's been a consultant for almost 10 years, no one's going to pay for me to do be a registrar or a resident again. So it's, it's not going to happen realistically. But I've learned a lot of what I need to know from my friends and colleagues who don't do those sort of war-based settings or PICU settings. And I, I can take that knowledge that I've learned as a near peer and take that to the emergency department. And how do you actually split your workload? Do you do a certain point, something of FTE for each? Yeah, so I do 0.5 EFT in adults and 0.2 in kids. When I started as a consultant, like a lot of us, you say yes to every single opportunity going. And so I did, I was doing retrieval as well at the time for the state retrieval service. So I was almost doing like 1.1 FTE amongst everything, but it made it really difficult to juggle rosters and time. And there were a couple of days when 
ended up having to expose theoretically working at two jobs at once. And over time, I recognized that I was just getting more and more exhausted with less free time. And so I pulled back on, stopped working for adult retrieval, and I pulled back on my adult practice. So I'm just doing sort of that 0.2 peds and then 0.5 adults with clinical support time thrown into the mix. So essentially, it's seven days a fortnight, roughly, I work now, which is great. It gives me time for spend time with my kids, spend time for me and doing extracurricular activities. And I don't feel that I'm constantly at work. Now, I'm very interested to hear about how Don't Forget the Bubbles came about. Can you explain it, first of all? Okay, so Don't Forget the Bubbles is a website that Tessa Davis, Henry Goldstein, Ben Lawton, and myself started back in 2013. Originally, the premise was essentially a way of sharing resources and notes to help us study for exams. And it was a time when everyone seemed to be writing, setting up blog posts, I think just after the first SMAC Social Media and Critical Care Conference in Sydney. And I was a PEDS reg, ED reg at the time, and Tessa reached out because she noticed I had been tweeting pearls from my shifts and said, hey, did I want to get involved? And really since then, it's evolved into this global education initiative where we produce blog posts. We've, I think we've published over 1,200 blog posts now. We've run international conferences since 2017. We've created online educational courses, and we do some research on the side. And what started out as four of us is now, you know, we've got had reached into sort of hundreds of people involved. We have a core of about 12 of us who run things behind the scenes, but you've got over 250 authors doing stuff for us. And it's my passion project is what I do that I think, you know, we do this with a sense that we want to make a difference to any healthcare sort of clinician that's looking after kids. And so we're a physician healthcare worker focused group rather than a patient or parent focused group. And it's something that I spend an inordinate amount of my free time on. What specifically do you do currently? Do you write content or are you doing more behind the scenes, coordinating the events? Or When we first started, we all did a bit of everything. But I'm, in essence, the editor-in-chief of the website. So my job is I partly commission blog posts if I think something is interesting. I will edit people's blog posts if someone or other authors write for us. And in my free time, when the mood takes me, I will also write as well, because that's, that's one of those things I love to do. As well as doing that, I help out organize and find speakers and things for our international conferences, help train our speakers and do speaker coaching for them, and create content for some of our online courses as well. And in between, in the mix, I'll do a bit of research. And we you know if someone has an interesting research project they want to do through us, then I'll help out with the back end of that. Incredible. It sounds like you're still working at least 1.1, if not more, if you're doing all of that. (laughs) Yeah, but it's it's like anything, isn't it? If it's something you really enjoy doing, it doesn't always feel like work. There's a big difference between having to do stuff in the physical for the healthcare system that you feel you have to do. And then the stuff that you love doing and you want to do, and it doesn't feel like work. Some days, and certainly in the early days, it did feel like work. There are times when we make sure we have two blog posts a week, but there's a time when we didn't, I didn't have any in the bag waiting to go. And then I'd be spending hours each week writing four or 5,000 word blog posts. And that felt like work. But now that we've got more and more people as part of our sort of global community of practice, the actual work involved is great because I get to help nurture young authors. I read their work before it comes out. I'm learning whilst I'm reading and I can connect that work with a huge corpus of knowledge we already have. And it does not feel like work at all. That's pretty amazing. I think that's what everyone aspires to. 
I'm very intrigued because, as you said, everyone seemed to be writing blogs in 2013. Why do you think Don't Forget the Bubbles has become as successful as it was? What do you think set it apart from everyone else? Was it that persistent work that you put in or do you think there was other factors? I think there are a couple of things, Elise. I think one thing absolutely is consistency. We have put out, like I said, 1,200 blog posts since we started Every week, barring maybe one week, we put a minimum of two blog posts out with new content. So I think that's a big help. I think we've chosen a niche. So there are very few pediatric emergency medicine blogs globally, as opposed to emergency medicine blogs or podcasts. There's in that sort of sphere, you're competing with people like MCRIT and Life in the Fast Lane and Academic Life and Emergency Medicine. And so we have less competition. And I think that makes it easier for us to choose our niche and know what is our lane and what's not our lane. Because I think if we want to, although we're not competing with ourselves, we're still competing for attention with these other sort of other people, other groups. And then what we've done is we've reached out to global experts in their fields. So we've met, had collaborations with the three major pediatric research networks in the UK. So that's Peruki in the US, that's Pecan and Pern. And over in Australia, it's, you know, predict. And we've reached out to them and we get their pre-embargoed copies of their papers. They're going to get published in the Lancet and the New England Journal now. And so we can have cutting edge day of release blog posts to go with whatever their papers are to help promote their research. And that's really helped give us some credibility. Because I think one of the challenges, if you're a researcher, you want people to read your research. In the main, most of it ends up still wrapped in plastic, sitting by the toilet waiting to be opened. (laughs) <laughs> as opposed to people reading stuff. And there's a big difference between what clinic researchers think junior doctors read and what junior doctors actually read. And what we, I think we've learned how to do and get very good at is distilling complex information into simple ideas that you can actually use with your next patient. And I think that's what's been made us helpful. When we started, our aim was really to answer those questions that junior doctors would have every day but they couldn't easily find access in the information for in textbooks. And so we would answer questions about fluids or how to draw a genogram or how to deal with X, Y, or Z problem that you don't find in your latest copy of Harrison's. It made it very easy for us to be accessible from that point of view. So now if I've got a junior doctor who wants to know about bronchiolitis, they could read the latest paper or they could try and pick open a textbook. But actually, if they want something that's up to date, you know, given that textbooks are already five years out of date by the time they come into publication and easy to read, they're often going to use Google Us rather than try and do a med search, for example. And that's great because you know, it makes us useful. Did it immediately take off or was it very slow growth at the start? So I think when we started in August 2013, we'd already pre-written a few blog posts and we would get, I would say... I think in our first couple of months, we had about 700 readers. And I thought, wow, that's super exciting. Like everyone who tries to create anything online, it's amazing just to feel you're being read. And we thought, this is it. We didn't think we we're going to go stratospheric or we didn't think we could make a big difference. And things really sort of improved over the low, slowly trickled up over the years since then. And then after COVID in 2019, and we started having a lot more COVID-related content, we then sort of started hitting huge numbers for us. So we get... 1.5, 1.6 million readers a year at the moment, which is fabulous. More than anything I could have ever written or ever had published in any paper or textbook, I feel like it's actually much more valuable. And so when COVID came along, it made a big difference to us because we basically 
decided we were going to create a repository of every single pediatric COVID paper that was published. And so we created a resource online and Ali Munro, Alison Boast and Henry with some colleagues would basically critique every single pediatric paper for an entire year. And people were coming to the repository every single week. And that was being used not just by medics, but by governments, thinkers, the WHO started referencing our work, the economists, National Geographic, all these other people started referencing our work. And that's when our readership really took off. Wow, that's incredible. Do you have many plans for the future of Don't Forget the Bubbles or your future (laughs) yourself in your career? So it's interesting, you know, we have a board of directors, so the four of us originals and an executive committee, and we meet on a regular basis to decide what our plans are. And often our plans are keeping going financially. So we run a conference and create online paid digital content to pay for the website because that's after a while, it gets more and more expensive to do that. And I think our aim still is creating a huge global community of practice that improves the care of children. So we've run workshops and teaching in Kenya and Uganda and Lithuania and in third world countries. And we love the opportunity to do that. And really what we want to do is just link all those people who are interested in pediatrics and looking at pediatric healthcare with each other and creating a global conversation. And so I think over the next few years, we're going to continue to provide to be a sort of living textbook of pediatrics that keeps up to date. We've managed to create a master's in pediatric emergency medicine through the Queen Mary's University of London. So we've launched a, this is our sort of a second and third year now cohort going through that we've managed to get a university co-branded master's course. And that's a wonderful thing to do. And I think what we'll try and do is create more digital content so we have an increased passive income stream so that we can do what we want to do. Over the last two or three years, we've managed to move so we have virtual assistants doing some of the behind the scenes work. So I no longer have to upload and format blog posts. They're already done for me. I then just edit for style and content rather than just putting them up there and adding bolds and italics for websites. And that's really helpful. And what would be great is if we would love to continue to do further research. And that's the other thing that income stream from the digital content is used for is to do research. So we're about to launch a research project with the University of Dublin looking at attitudes and training towards looking after LGBTQIA children and young people. We've just almost finished doing some research on analysis of elbow x-rays in pediatrics. And so we've got a sort of a broad range of initiatives we want to do. Sounds like a lot of big plans for the future. I'm excited to see where it goes. Now, one thing that we haven't touched on that came up everywhere that I researched when I was trying to prepare for this podcast is the story about you swallowing Lego for science. And I couldn't get a whole lot of context on it. So I'm keen to hear the full story. What were you aiming to achieve? And when did this happen? Where did this happen? Why did this happen? So I think the easy thing to do is start with a why. (laughs) I was asked to give a talk at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne for one of their paediatric updates. And I was going to talk about ingested foreign bodies. Kids love to stick things in their mouths, swallow things they're not supposed to. And we've been seeing a lot of children with sort of button battery ingestions. And we know I'm the sort of person who over-prepares when it comes to giving a talk. So I've done all this background research. I knew, for instance, that coins are the most commonly swallowed objects by kids. Then it would be plastic toys is how it's described in the textbooks, which generally means bits of Lego. 
And then, you know, other shiny things that we need to worry about, like pins, pills, and button batteries. And I've done a huge amount of research. I've got magic tricks to do during my talk. I had awesome slides. I had poems. I had gummy worms to give away. And there were 400 people coming to this regional training day. And in my side room, there were 15 people. By the end of my talk, I was the third one to speak. There was 12 people. And I thought, oh, my God, I've done all this work. It seemed a bit of a waste. Like, whenever I do a talk, I'll turn it into a blog post. So I turned it into a blog post. And I thought, we still really don't know what happens, what this number two item that people had swallowed is. And we thought, I had a good sense that it was probably bits of Lego. I remember when I was a kid trying to get those bits of Lego that were stuck together apart and having to use my teeth to try and pry them apart. So I know it must have been something to do with that. And we always see kids who swallow coins and don't really worry about them too much after we've made sure they're not button batteries. I thought, how long does it take a piece of Lego to go through a human being? And we'd been trying to find an idea that something we could put get published in the Christmas BMJ. And we thought I convinced Tessa and the gang to do this experiment. And our experiment essentially was to take a standardized piece of Lego. And we thought the easiest thing that we can all get hold of was a Lego head from a minifig. And we would see how long it would take to go through. And we wanted to make sure we did it in as scientifically rigorous a way as possible. So we did a stool diary beforehand and afterwards swallowed our you know for three days to just get our standard stool frequency we decided it was our stool hardness and for score that's we and transit time that's what we wanted the shat scores <laughs> and then we wanted to find out how long it would take us to find these lego heads and so basically we took our lego and then every time we went to the toilet we had to sift through our poo trying to find that head and to mark it down and that was our found and retrieved or fart score six of us we did this and we found that on average, it took 1.7 days for a standard Lego head to come out in someone's poo. That's the five of us who found our Lego head. One of us is probably still sitting in there because he never found it. It's still lurking around in his intestine somewhere three or four years later. So that was fun. We thought that was a simple bit of fun experiment we did. And so we wrote it up and sent it to the Christmas BMJ and thinking, well, what's got a good chance of getting published? You know, they published papers about the grip strength of orthopedic surgeons versus anesthetists and how inept Dr. Brown Bear of Peppa Pig is as a GP. So we thought this might get a chance. And we got a round refusal, will not publish from the BMJ. But we thought we'd done the work. You get paid off for, by persistence. And we then applied and tried to send our paper off to another three or four different journals and each time we got a no thanks but no thanks until the journal pediatrics and child health the editor there read the paper burst out laughing i imagine and said yeah go on we'll give it a chance and so we published the paper and it was clearly a very slow news week but we managed to get it i spoke to our local university press office and they pushed it out to people and it was in between election cycles over here in melbourne for some reason and the local paper picked it up and then the ABC picked it up and then it went viral and it was in every single newspaper, syndicated newspaper in Australia and the UK, got picked up on all the news channels. I ended up going on the project, just talking about swallowing bits of Lego with Peter Hellier. And because it got picked up by the newswire, it made it to the US and Jimmy Kimmel and James Corden started talking about it in their monologues for their chat shows. So we knew we'd made it at that point. Incredible. That's much more exciting than being published in the BMJ, in my opinion. But Exactly. And, you know, I think from our point of view, what it really showed was that no work is wasted, even, you know, that no one turned up to my talk. It was still worth it in the end because something good came about it. 
and also not to really give up when someone tries to say, actually, no, it's not worth doing your, we're not going to publish your work. Once you've done the work and you've written the paper, actually applying for another journal is not a huge amount of extra work. And so we just kept on going and were persistent until someone said yes. And if they hadn't, we would have just put it, published it on the website anyway. So it doesn't really matter too much. And every now and then, you know, that was in 2017 or 2018, I think, you know, it still resurfaces in the paper every now and then. It's been on turning up as quiz questions on QI and other quiz shows. So it's, we're now in the cultural memory of a generation of people. And the year we published, this is pre-COVID, we had turned, our paper ended up getting an altmetric score that put it at number 300 in the list of papers that had ever been published of all time. So out of 60 million papers, we were the 300th most heard of paper, which is pretty amazing considering what was in there. The problem is now, of course, that every paper I ever do write or idea that people have, they want it to be better or at least the same as, and it's really not going to happen. <laughs> I peaked very early. That's phenomenal. I, I think my favorite part of it all is that I find medicine a bit too serious sometimes, and this is very unserious. Oh, yeah, definitely not serious. <laughs> definitely not. I mean, it's not hard science. You know, there was a little bit of criticism that how can you use six people to equal real science? But every now and then what will happen is I'll get a text from AP, any emergency pediatrician in Melbourne and they'll send me a screenshot of their triage table where some child has come in and swallowed leg ahead and they'll send it. I'll still get a text from them and they'll print out the paper and give it to the parents to reassure them. You just need to do it bigger, I think. Randomised control trial. Well, originally I wanted to do it with my children, but I thought getting ethics committee approval for that would be a bit of a challenge from getting our wives to let us go. And we thought about trying to get us to do something similar at one of our conferences, but again, convincing you know 400 people to swallow a bit of lego maybe we could do a, the the conference in sydney i'll bring a load of lego heads and see if i can convince everyone to swallow them and see how we go from yes. there <laughs> perfect the last question that we ask every single guest on the podcast is if you were to do something completely outside of medicine outside of healthcare, and a complete alternative dream reality career what would you do i'd be a writer 100 percent. i would love to spend my time thinking and writing and I would love to write fiction. I have no idea what I would write because that's the part of it. That's said as a dream rather than a reality. <laughs> but I love thinking. I find new ideas and spending my time noodling around on my keyboard or, or with a notebook and writing. And I think if I could spend my time walking around researching a cool idea for some sort of book and then just drinking coffee, sitting, watching the world go by and then think, oh, this is a great conversation. I should write this down. That'd be an amazing thing to do. Well, it sounds like you're already a bit on track for that. Maybe we'll see fiction from you in the future. Maybe. That's been really interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Very unique career once again. Yeah, I think I learned a long time ago that you don't have to dash from being a medical student straight through to a consultant. I think when you get to be a consultant, no one cares how long it's taken you to get there. And there's sometimes a zigzag jiggly path is the best one because you learn more to look after your patients, but you also learn more to look after yourself. That's great wisdom to leave us with. Thank you very much, Andy. Thanks, Elise. Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes of this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging 